from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to the San Francisco screening of Cut, Slicing Through the Myths of Circumcision. My name is Jonathan Conti. I am one of the uh, event coordinators for Bay Area Intactivists, which is a local human rights group dedicated to protecting the uh, human right to genital integrity for male, female, and intersex individuals. Uh, this screening was made possible through a cooperative effort between Bay Area Intactivists and the whole network, and it is part of a 30-city North American tour. So I'm so happy that you're able to join us tonight for this screening. Um, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who made this screening possible, as well as all of our uh, contributors who help with the national tour as well. Um, so the agenda for tonight, we are going to uh, watch the film. It's about 70 minutes long. Following that, there'll be a brief intermission, after which we'll have a Q&A session with our panel of special guests. So please stick around after the film. We'd love to have your comments and questions for that. I also ask that anyone with electronic devices uh, please mute or turn them off for the consideration of those around you. And now I am very pleased to introduce to you the director of CUT, Mr. Eli Ungar-Sargon. Eli. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon. I'm the filmmaker. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. A few words of thanks are in order. I want to thank um, uh, Mark and Joan Reese for uh, hosting myself and my wife Penny uh, here in your lovely city of San Francisco. I should thank the whole network for helping to make this tour possible, and of course the Bay Area Intactivists for the local organizing. Uh, so it's really great to be here in San Francisco. Uh, you guys haven't been so quiet about this issue lately. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I just want to, um, you know, whatever anyone says about what happened here this summer, I just want to express my deep appreciation for all the work you guys did around this issue. You know, we can have arguments and discussions and debates about the strategic values and all of that stuff, but when all is said and done, um, you guys focused the national and international media's attention on this issue for a solid two months. Um, and in my experience, that's the hardest part about this issue, is getting people to talk about it in the first place. So I, I just want to acknowledge and thank you for your efforts in raising people's awareness to this issue. So uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's well deserved. So thank you all so much for coming. Uh, and I look forward to talking to you after the screening. And uh, with that, I think we're going to start by introducing ourselves. Uh, Rebecca Wald. Okay, my name is Rebecca Wald, and um, I am the founder of the Beyond the Brist Project. It is a web-based multimedia project that I started in December. Um, and the focus of the project is um, it is a Jewish voices who question or are opposed to circumcision site. Um, I have uh, contributors who have written for the site. Um, and I also encourage original music, poetry, art, 
um, different kinds of expression on the site. Um, initially, I had the idea to write a book um, about the modern Jewish movement opposing circumcision, but I realized that in this day and age, there are a lot of um, drawbacks and limitations to a nonfiction book um, on this subject because the dialogue is changing so quickly. Um, so I thought that a web-based project um, would be a little bit more dynamic and able to accomplish what I was hoping to accomplish. Um, I think the site has had um, some success since I started in December. We've had um, 11,000 uh, visitors to the site from 95 countries. Um, I've had uh, many uh, contributors to the site and I've done four exclusive interviews, um, including one interview with uh, Jason Page, who is the current lead singer for Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Um, and Beyond the Briss um, has also become a media resource. Um, I'm often contacted by the press um, who, you know, whenever they're writing a story and are interested to learn more about this issue. Um, and if you could just uh, share with us how you came to this issue also. Well, um, I um, never really uh, liked the idea of circumcision. It never really made a whole lot of sense to me, although I am Jewish. Um, and uh, I started to think more about it when I had a son. Um, and uh, I would like to be part of creating a world where um, he can live and be proud of who he is. Great, thanks so much. Um, Mark, Dr. Reese, if you would uh, give your introduction, please. So my name is Mark Reese. I am a retired physician. Uh, I was a diagnostic radiologist. I uh, am a 20-year resident of uh, San Francisco and uh, Jewish, and I'm a member of the largest conservative synagogue here in San Francisco, Congregation Beth Shalom. I kind of wear two hats in the anti-circumcision movement. I'm the vice president of Doctors Opposing Circumcision, a national if not international organization which primarily works with education of physicians, parents, and health professionals. Uh, outside on the table I, I, I had one example of just a small example of our of, uh, of the uh, of what we do uh, it's a well-known fact that physicians and health professionals, nurses, are woefully inadequately trained in how to take care of the intact penis. And one of the first things that happens in a well-baby check is that the nurse or the pediatrician will reach for the intact foreskin and try to retract it, which of course is painful and causes a lot of damage. So one of the things that we, we uh, did is to prepare these little stickums which say caution, I'm intact, don't retract. Uh, and uh, they're, they're made to be placed on a sticky uh, page and to be cut them, cut them each little piece off and put them on the baby's diaper. Because mm -hmm. it is a big problem, premature mm -hmm. retraction and, and, tra and trauma to the baby. Uh, education in medical schools, education of physicians is a big part of what we do. The second uh, hat that I wear is in the Jewish arena. About 10 years ago, I realized that parents who want to have some relationship to Judaism and want to have uh, 
a covenantal naming ceremony because that's really all a bris is. It's a ceremony in which you bring the little boy into a covenant with the religion and then you cut off part of his penis. So instead of brit milah, what we call this non-cutting alternative ceremony is brit shalom. There are, there are other names for it, brit bali milah, without milah, or brit ben, instead of brit bat, or naming ceremony for a little boy, or brit chayim. But in any case, we, I call a site that I developed the celebrants of brit shalom. And I started out with about 10 rabbis and other, other lay leaders throughout the country who will agree to be listed online and to perform or officiate at this naming ceremony. I now have over 50 celebrants throughout the country and the, uh, some the, even in Israel and even in, uh, in parts of Europe. And uh, I routinely get between two and three contacts by email or phone per week and uh, unfortunately I don't have a good handle on people always ask me how many how many Jews don't circumcise how many Brit Shaloms do you have I don't have a lot of follow-up on this but I just have the feeling that although still in a very small minority that the number of intact baby boys Jewish baby boys growing up in the United States are increasing and I think it will parallel the circumcision droppage throughout the United States. Now the numbers are, uh, are down about 50% nationally and on the West Coast considerably less than that. So uh, I think, and I think there are many, many uh, scholars who do agree with me that as the numbers of circumcisions drop in the generic population, so they will in the Jewish mm -hmm. population. Uh, we do know that we have some hard facts in Sweden, for example, where only 40%, 40% of Jewish boys born in Sweden are circumcised. And in many of the other countries uh, of, of Europe, especially in Scandinavia, it is, it is very rare. And I have to say that I routinely, when I get consulted by parents who might be in conflict about whether or not they're going to circumcise their son, I routinely will recommend Ellie's film and I can tell you that it has been a deal breaker and it has made the decision to save that baby's foreskin in several cases that, I, that, I, that I've been mm -hmm. told. So I, I just need to compliment uh, Ellie on, on that facet mm -hmm. uh, of this. Now, how did I get involved in this? Uh, I came into it pretty late. I was um, at a point in my life where I was about to become the older generation, the fourth parent of my my wife's father was, was dying, and uh, at the same time, coincidentally, I was about to become a grandfather. One of my children was, was, uh, was about to have a child. And I truly believe that when we're in these sensitive or vulnerable places in our life that we can get messages. We listen to the things, our feelings, and I truly had an epiphany. It's a pretty long story, which I've chronicled in an article I wrote call, called My, My uh, Painful Journey. Uh, and uh, anyone who's interested, can, I can give them the details. But uh, I got it, and it uh, began my journey for the last 12 years, in which I've been proud to call myself an intactivist now. Mm. 
Hi, everybody. I'm Lisa Braver-Moss. Um, I became interested in this issue as a young Jewish mother of two sons who are now grown. Um, I had serious misgivings about circumcision, but went along with the tradition, and um, it's actually really painful to, to uh, it's really painful to sit with that sometimes. Um, th but there was virtually no questioning of circumcision among affiliated Jews at that time. Um, back in the late 80s, I was um, working for Dr. Dean Adele briefly, um, working with him on his newsletter, doing some editing for him. And he's a well-known circumcision opponent, as you all probably know. He encouraged me to write about my experience um, as a mother. And my first article appeared in Tikkun Magazine in 1990. Um, I also was a speaker at the Second International Symposium on Circumcision in 1991. Um, then I went on and published a few other articles around that time also on this topic and uh, for Jewish publications. Then I moved on to other topics as an essayist and wrote a couple books. Um, but I could not get this issue out of my system. <laughs> I, returned, uh, I returned to it as a, uh, more recently as the author of The Measure of His Grief, uh, which is the first novel ever to address the male circumcision controversy. and the intactivist cause, and it's also the first novel to, um, to deal with foreskin restoration. Um, so I've written both nonfiction and fiction about this topic, and what I like about the novel as a medium is that it allows the reader to entertain these difficult questions um, while primarily being absorbed in, in story. And I think this gets to a different part of the psyche, so that the difficulties that we, we sometimes experience talking about this stuff and how do we talk about it and, how, you know, should I be inflammatory here, should I not be inflammatory here, um, some of these things uh, which obsess me as a nonfiction writer, um, actually it, it's also true in fiction, but I think in fiction I've, I feel I've had more freedom to just let the voices be what, what they are and tell the story that way. Um, so I'm very, I'm very pleased and grateful uh, that I was able to do that. Um, just briefly, The Measure of His Grief is the story of a Jewish doctor in Berkeley who wages a campaign against circumcision and um, he also engages in foreskin restoration. But instead of undermining his Jewish identity, um, this path that he's on winds up solidifying it for him. Um, and I'm also interested in the feminist aspect of circumcision, which I have written a little bit about, but I'd like to, uh, to explore more. It's we, in Jewish feminism, um, we've focused a lot on, you know, should we have naming ceremonies for baby girls? Yes, of course we should have naming ceremonies for baby girls. Should women be allowed to be moils? Well, you know, this particular question makes me wince, but um, I can at least understand it. Um, but to me, these are both not the main feminist issue about this tradition. For me, the main thing is the mother's experience of this and the, um, the, the feelings that I had as a mother, feeling pressured, feeling, um, feeling that my own spirituality about this was, was discounted, that I was condescended to. Um, and I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger, finger at any one particular person or even institution, it was, it was sort of a, a general feeling about it. And um, I think that spiritual condescension towards the women, not every woman, not every Jewish mother feels this, but I certainly did, I think that's something that 
I'd like to see Jewish feminism take on that that piece of it, which which we really haven't um, we really haven't explored enough yet. I think so. That's what I'd like to say. Thank you. And before we open up to question and answer, I'll just say a few words. I, I feel that I need to acknowledge something really cool that's going on here, which is you're you're now looking at four Jews <laughs> uh, who are opposed to circumcision. Um, and I'm very proud to be sharing the plenum with them. Um, I, uh, they're my kind of Jews. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that. So I think with that, we can uh, open it up for question and answer. I'll hold the mic for you. Um, hi, I'm, I'm not a Jew. Sorry. <laughs> but um, Don't apologize. <laughs> well, the, the, the film uh, focuses more on circumcision in, in, um, in an infants. And I am Filipino, and I grew up in the Philippines. And there, um, circumcision is, um, is um, mostly done to boys who are t teenagers and the whole thing is, you know, your, um, the, the boy's um, transformation to manhood. So I wanted to see what the panel feels, felt, feels about that. Well, I I'm gonna answer very quickly because I don't have a lot of knowledge or thoughts about other cultures that do this. I mean, I, we can, and I, I think there's an important distinction that needs to be made between um, infant circumcision and circumcision as a rite of passage. Um, I have not dealt with circumcision as a rite of passage at all in my film. I don't belong to the cultures in which that's practiced. Um, I'm comfortable talking about it from the perspective of a Jewish American. I address the Jewish community, I address the American community, um, and I do think infant circumcision and circumcision as a rite of passage are s have slightly difficult, uh, sorry, slightly different ethical considerations that go into them and there are different cultural considerations um, so I am afraid I don't have much to say about it uh, I think ultimately uh, at roots I do believe that this is a human rights issue and that if this is being done to someone who doesn't have the ability to consent to it then we have a, a problem um, but I much prefer to support people in other cultures who have problems with it than to criticize directly myself I don't know a lot about, specifically about the situation in the Philippines, but my understanding of it was that they did not circumcise at all until the culture in the United States, which grew out of the British culture in the 1850s or thereabout, causing the medicalization of circumcision. And then when the British health system stopped paying for it, the British doctors just turned around and said, why in the world are we doing this? So they stopped doing it in Great Britain. They continued doing it in the United States, probably the most puritanical of all of the British colonies, so to speak. It's practically unheard of in uh, New Zealand now. Australia and Canada are down to about 20%, but somewhere along the line, I think the Philippines got the idea, well, the Americans are doing it. This must be something good. But it did not, it did not happen as a rite of passage, for example, as it is practiced in some uh, Polynesian cultures, which totally antedates the medicalization in the Anglophone countries of the world. And that's my understanding of it. And why they do it as a, not an infant circumcision, I don't have any information about that. Thank you. 
Yes, I, I'm also non-Jew. Um, I would say uh, I, I, I greatly appreciate what you did and what you present in the movie. I would say Jewish babies have it good, uh, better than non-Jews um, who are done as a medical procedure. Mm. Uh, what is hugely missing for me in the movie is addressing the psychological effects. Um, imagine post-traumatic stress disorder your whole life mm. with the effects that has. Uh, not only on the individual, but everyone that individual has relationships with, on the society as a whole. Um, addictions, disease, you know, abuse, children and spousal abuse, um, probably probably different kinds of crime also. But the problem is, is this is an invisible problem because uh, um, because this is the world we live in, where everybody has had this experience, and I believe everybody has some degree of PTSD. All males who have been circumcised carry that. It's also invisible because we can't remember it. So, well, yeah. just to address why that's not in the film, um, and that was very intentional. There are a number of things I didn't include in the film. You'll notice I didn't talk about complications. You'll notice I didn't talk about the psychological consequences, and it's not because I don't recognize that there are um, there are psychological consequences. I recently did uh, had the opportunity to do an interview with Ronald Goldman, who's done a lot of work on this subject. And uh, we talked about the effects on the infant, the effects on the man as he grows up as an adult, the effects on the parents, the effects on the practitioners. And I think this is an important subject, but it's not in the film for a very specific reason. And that is, I'm aware that many people who see this film do not agree with my conclusions about this practice. And what I've tried to be disciplined about is presenting incontrovertible, hard, scientific, empirical evidence about the harms of this practice. This is not to suggest that there aren't harms that go beyond that, just that from a rhetorical and a strategic perspective, I feel much more comfortable talking to someone who disagrees with me about this, about Meisner's corpuscles, than I do about post-traumatic stress disorder or even about something like sexual dysfunction in the sort of classically, in the way that that's classically defined. Um, I think that, in, in all honesty, it's really hard to demonstrate these things conclusively because there are so many confounding variables. I suspect that your analysis is correct. I just can't prove it. And when I can't prove something and I'm talking to someone who doesn't agree with me, I try to sort of stay on the things that I can really talk about with hard data. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate. There probably have not been studies done to establish the psychological effects. So, well, I, I, and if you yeah, think can, about designing a study that. of that nature, you could, you could, you will, you will reach the conclusion that it's really difficult. Um, because, as I said, there's so many confounding variables. Take something as, as simple as, um, let's say, let's say erectile dysfunction. There have been attempts to demonstrate that there's a high, there are higher levels of erectile dysfunction in circumcised men than in intact men. Well, you know. How many confounding variables can you think of just off the top of your head for what might cause erectile dysfunction, and how exactly are you going to control for that in a study? Mm -hmm. I just think that these are, are things that, for whatever reason, our current level of scientific tools 
and investigative empirical tools are not up to the task of teasing out. And I hope as we go forward and as we develop our tools um, and we get better at studying these sorts of things and controlling for various elements of these phenomena, we will be able to approach it. But my understanding of the literature and of where we are currently uh, scientifically is that we don't have the tools to really demonstrate or even conduct um, important and interesting studies on some of those subjects. Yes. Thank you. Um, I am well aware of the so-called major complications, minor complications, and overwhelming psych psychological complications. And when I'm interviewed on this subject and someone asks me, well, what is the complication rate in circumcision? I will say without a, without a doubt it's 100%. And the reason I'm saying it's 100% is exactly because of the reasons that you're talking about. There is, there is definite evidence of limbic imprinting somatic memory, so even though we don't, because this is done at an infantile state, we don't remember it, but I myself have, that was the actual event that caused my epiphany, was a remembering of this while on the massage table. And I've had many men come up to me later and tell me that this has happened uh, to them as well. Hypnotherapists have known for years that they that when they see men who are age regressed, they somehow, many of them will be grabbing their, their genitals when they age regress them back near the birth memories. And they never understood it until someone brought up the question, well, maybe this is circumcision. And indeed, f for American men, this seems to be true. So I agree <coughs> with everything that's been said, but I think that ultimately uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is uh, the cause, is, is a 100% complication of all circumcisions. I'd just like to add something, which is that, um, <coughs> yes, this is, this is an example of something that you can, you can sort of do in fiction. You can, you can in, um, invite the reader to imagine, um, because what you're saying is true, that there's, we, we have a, <laughs> we have a p pretty full plate just just pointing out the evidence that already exists. Um, and um, it's very difficult to address these issues that are harder to demonstrate and, and so on. But in, in, um, in a story, you can do that. And in fact, I do that in my book. So I just wanted to, to mention that. Ah, the joys of fiction. <laughs> the joys of fiction, exactly. Well, you know, I would also like to add that, um, you know, one of the things that, um, I found is that I'm getting more and more emails um, from people as my project has continued. And um, I get a lot of emails from men who are very, very upset that this occurred. So I think that that alone is uh, evidence of psychological trauma, um, you know, in and, in and of itself. And that's something, those are the kinds of stories I think that need to be told. Um, because personal experience is, you know, it, mi it might not be, um, you know, hard science, but I think personal experience is very compelling. Hi, um, I'm wondering if those of you who have sons who you've not circumcised could speak to how you've um, address that issue with them, with the community. There was something in the movie that um, really struck both me and my husband about negotiating the rights of the individual, but also taking into consideration the community. And um, so I'm 
curious as someone who might have a son and will be raising that son as Jewish, even though I'm not Jewish and my husband is Jewish, um, how, what advice you can give us if we make that decision not to circumcise? Well, I think every parent is different. Um, you know, I chose not to circumcise my son. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it's very much in harmony with my values as a human being and as a parent. I don't see it as being a decision that I made that is so far away from who I am. You know, I feel that my son should, you know, grow up to make his own decisions, be his own person, um, certainly be able to stand up for himself um, in the face of, you know, perhaps some teasing that might take place. Um, so, you know, for me, the decision not to circumcise is very much tied to the kind of a parent that I am. Um, you know, all of the different justifications for circumcision, um, I can come back and say, you know, yes, but, you know, that's not the kind of lesson that I would want my son um, to learn growing up. You know, you don't, um, you know, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of different ways that I could go with this, but, you know, you don't, you don't um, not do something because you're afraid that you might get teased um, yeah, for it, for example. And the movie was really helpful, the comment that the, um, the philosopher made about about shame and there's different types of shame. That was very helpful to hear. Well, you know, I, I also think, you know, in a lot of, um, I, I don't think that it comes up so often that a child will be, you know, in a locker room and teased. That argument is always used. Oh, well, what's gonna happen when, you know, he's in the locker room? You know, first of all, the circumcision rate in the United States is dropping, you know, considerably. So I would imagine, you know, the locker room is gonna be pretty diverse. <laughs> but, you know, even so, you know, I, I would just much, I would rather him, you know, be secure in who he is and feel proud of the fact, you know, that he is, you know, he's whole, he hasn't been damaged. I think that, you know, I, I don't know, you know, what his decision will be later in life. Perhaps he may even decide to become circumcised if he, if he wants to, and that's okay. Um, but I think that he is gonna thank me and probably thank me that he was spared from this trauma and allowed to make his own decision. Have you discussed it with him? Well, he's only six. <laughs> <laughs> so I think th this question comes down to conformity. Uh, conformity in the locker room, conformity to a religion, conformity to look like daddy. And I think all of these arguments, when you come right down to it, are, are shot to bits. Uh, certainly in the United States, and certainly in California, babies that are being born now, uh, less than 30% of them are being circumcised. So by the time they're in high school and are sharing a communal shower or a, or a communal locker room, the tides have turned. So you don't have that shame or that conformity issue to deal with. I will tell you that I experienced it firsthand in Iceland. We, we were in a communal uh, hot thermal bath and there was a shower afterwards. I was the only one in that communal shower of about 
30 men and boys that didn't have a foreskin. And I can tell you that I had foreskin envy for about <laughs> five or 10 minutes during that shower. But the, the whole issue of conformity, especially with dealing with, with, with in Judaism, is a, real, is a real issue. But I can tell you that more and more people are getting comfortable with the idea of uncircumcised or, as we like to use the term, intact or natural penises on little Jewish boys. Th it's not at all that terribly uncommon when the women in the daycare centers will change the diaper and see an intact baby boy. And when I, I just want to make one comment about the use of the term intact versus uncircumcised. We're trying to, what we're trying to do in the general integrity or general autonomy movement is to change the paradigm of reality so that we're thinking about the intact penis as the normal, not the circumcised penis as normal. When I went to medical school, the diagrams of the penis were all of a circumcised penis. We didn't know any better. Mm. That's not the case in Europe. It is the case, and it's changing in the United States. But I, I always use the term uh, when I talk about this to a, to a woman, I say, well, it's clear that you have both breasts. You're, not an, un you're, you're, you're an unmastectomized woman. And when they hear that, they really get it. So uh, we tend not to use the term uncircumcised, but intact. And that's why we call ourselves intactivists. I'd, I'd like to add something to this, not as someone who has the privilege of having had a child and left him intact, but just as someone who's been going around the country now for two months talking to people who have left their kids intact. And one of the things that I've been actually really surprised by um, is that you know, I always ask that question. I always ask, um, you know, wh what about the locker room? What about the shame? You know, how are you dealing with that? And the thing that I found shocking is that every single person to a person has said it's been a non-issue. Um, and that's shocking to me, but it, it also reminds me of another thing, and I think we have two parallel things going on here uh, in the Jewish community and in the American community, and it's, it's a similar thing, which is that there's a sort of um, blown out of proportion notion uh, among American Jews and among Americans that leaving a boy intact will have these dire social consequences. We hear these stories I see very little evidence on either side for that. And I, um, on the Jewish side, I, 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 I've been going further and saying that people have this sort of, you know, bizarre notion that, you know, uh, intact Jewish boys will be excluded from all sorts of things. And this is helped along by some, you know, really moronic rabbis who say things like, well, I won't let a uh, an intact boy, you know, read the Torah or have a bar mitzvah or this sort of nonsense. There is no religious halachic basis for that. That rabbi is just being a dick. <laughs> I mean, there's, there, is, there is nothing today that an intact Jewish male, according to the strictest letter of halacha, cannot participate in. Um, that's important to state. And just a final point on this. When I was in Chicago, I did an interview with one of the rabbis who was in the film, another interview, Rabbi Asher Lopatin, who's an, a modern Orthodox rabbi, so from the Orthodox world. And I said to him, you know, if you knew that a boy was intact and he wanted to be bar mitzvah in your shul, what, you know, how would you react? And he said, of course I'd welcome him into the shul. Um, now, this may be atypical in the Orthodox world, um, but if there are rabbis in the Orthodox world who can react that way, 
Um, I imagine that there are plenty of rabbis in the non-Orthodox world who could react that way. But if the mother's not Jewish, on top of that? <laughs> that may be an issue for some members of the Orthodox community, but again, there are people out there. There are people out there who will take you seriously, who will take your child seriously if you want to bring him into a Jewish community. And I, I just, I, I don't want you to be discouraged about this. You just have to find the right people. I wonder if you can give us, if you have any information about the growing popularity of the anti-circumcision or anti-activism movement among Muslims, both in the United States and in the Muslim world. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that um, <laughs> just anecdotally, I see a lot less activity in the Muslim world on this issue. Um, I did have a Muslim man, and his name escapes me right now, which embarrasses me, but he showed up to the Philadelphia screening and he participated in the question and answer session there and was talking about how in his view, this was not Quranic, this was from the Hadith, and that therefore, you know, it's not really necessary. I mean, I think objectively, circumcision is a less central ritual in Islam than it is in Judaism, for example. Um, but I think Islam... Uh, is also dealing with another difference, important difference uh, from uh, its brother faiths, if you will, um, and that is that it hasn't undergone a reformation. Um, there has, you know, the, the, the Jewish tradition underwent a reformation in the late 19th century. Uh, the Christian tradition underwent a reformation in the 16th century. Uh, Islam has not had that happen yet, and I know that there are a lot of moderate Muslims who are looking forward to a time when that will happen, I imagine that, w that when that eventually does happen, I think it's inevitable that Islam will undergo some kind of reformation. There will be a movement towards um, integrating modern thought into the religious tradition. At that point, I think this will probably become a much more um, pervasive issue for people to think about than it is now. Judaism has, for so many years, been associated with circumcision that in the modern culture, in the sitcoms, when you hear people talking about it, they inevitably will be relating circumcision to Judaism. And when people bring these things up to me, I, I said, well, of, of the three largest groups in the world that circumcise, where do you think the Jews fit in? And people say, oh, number one. Well, of course, it's not true, because the Muslims outnumber Jews by so many that the largest group in the world that circumcise are the Muslims. And the second largest group in the world that circumcise are the Americans. And the Jews are a very small minority of this. But in the culture of Judaism, we have always been trained just like, I mean, I think the, the final scene between you and your dad is so moving to me because ultimately he accepts your ability to question the religion and to challenge and to, to stand up to your own beliefs. And I think that's something that Judaism has always trained us to do. Um, I just want to add, I, I think it's partly about challenging established ideas, but it's partly about um, incorporating new information. And, you know, let's say the information about, yes, infants feel pain, let's call that new. It's, it's been around for at least a couple of decades, uh, documented evidence of that. Let's say that this, you know, the, the physiological function of the foreskin and, um, and, and the fact that it's erogenous tissue, let's say that's new. It's, it's pretty new. Okay, this is, Judaism wants, I mean, at least on paper, Judaism wants to know about that. And it's not so much a matter of challenging 
a tradition as adding new information that might change that might change our sense of what we're called to do. And I think that's a that's an important piece of it that Judaism is um, that Judaism does evolve over time, that practices do evolve over time as we as we gain insight. And I think it's really important. Um, I'm from Denmark. My, my question is that, or I have found that many uncircumcised men here in the United States don't know how to deal with uh, uncut men. Um, why do you think that is? Uh, any kind of idea about uh, how come that they do not know how to deal with it? Well, I mean, I think we're talking about a very, um, it's, it's not just about the fact that so many men here are circumcised and that, you know, your chances of encountering an, uh, an intact guy are, are, you know, lower than in encountering a circumcised guy, although that's changing, as Mark was pointing out. We're moving into a more, you know, bimodal distribution in which, you know, very soon it's going to be close to 50-50 in the locker room. Um, so, and it's not just that. I think um, that there's a, there's a barrier to thinking about this, um, and it's a deep psychological barrier. It comes from not wanting to deal with the fact, you know, at, from a circumcised male's perspective, that something was done to you that makes you abnormal. So the defense mechanism just flips it, and it says, well, the intact penis is abnormal. And when you've made that flip, and it's, again, it's rooted in this psychological defense mechanism, when you encounter it, that has all sorts of implications. One of the implications that uh, Dr. Reese was talking about earlier uh, has to do with this sort of forced retraction business that's going on now, so that infants are being forcibly retracted, or children are being forcibly retracted, they're having their foreskins forcibly retracted, by people who are approaching them, seeing that, that, that an abnormal penis and sort of immediately have this psychosexual response, well, I got to see that the glands. I, I have to make it look normal. Um, and so I think there's something very deep going on here. It's not just about unfamiliarity. Of course, you know, depending on the individual, you might bump into an individual who's open to learning about the foreskin, but for but they're, even they are, com are overcoming a cultural psychosexual hurdle to dealing with something that, that in our culture is abnormal. I'd like to add something here, which is, you know, as much as I never really liked the idea of circumcision, the circumcised penis always seemed like it was the normal penis to me. Um, you know, I, I grew up, the, all the children that I babysat for, the cousins that I, I knew growing, growing up were all circumcised. It actually took for me having a son who is intact before I realized just how normal intact is. When I was going through my um, undergrad in microbiology, we were taught to um, educate the public where, you know, about science and literature and stuff where they obviously don't have much education. And, and um, I think the subject has a large, broad room for people to become educated in, and so that's why I look at this. Plus, I'm at the age where everybody around me is having babies, and so when people come to me and ask me kind of my medical, you know, professional opinion of it, I, try, I tell them that they have to um, look very critically at this issue. 
And in order to do so, you have to take the procedure of circumcision and apply it to each stage of the male's life and what that actually means. What are the risks and benefits of having it done at each stage of a male's life? Um, for instance, like if you're doing it for a neonate, um, you know, with the emerging drug-resistant resi drug pathogens in our hospitals and the acquisition of those, what does that mean to it in uh, local anesthesia as opposed to a general anesthesia? How does that affect it? And in older age, you know, um, the implications of how to recover with, you know, possible erections and stuff like that. Um, and so I noticed that a lot of people do make just uninformed decisions when they're making this decision for their child. And, uh, you know, my job, if I were to make, like, an ignorant decision, it has huge um, medical repercussions if I were to, you know, report out a false test or something like that, obviously. Um, my question to you guys is, um, with respect to the education that is given by the medical community to prospective parents, um, how in-depth do, does that go and, and what type of um, efforts are made to ensure that the parents are you know, making an informed decision and that their medical, um, tr um, I forget the word, the medical um, understanding of all, how are they able to actually comprehend and, and make appropriate decisions? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be very interested to hear Dr. Reese's uh, opinion on this, but my uh, impression is that there are serious problems with obtaining conf informed consent from parents around this issue. I've seen a number of videos in which the sort of, uh, you know, the doctor gives them the rigmarole right before he's about to go in and do it, and they've already sort of, uh, you know, agreed to do it. So it's kind of like a pro forma thing. Um, they typically don't bring up any of the serious complications. Um, they never, ever talk about the functions of the foreskin or the contribution of the foreskin to sexual experience. Um, so, you know, there's that problem. Um, I would argue, actually, uh, if we're talking about cost-benefit analyses, um, that there's a really obvious thing going on here that a lot of people don't talk about, which is um, most medical authorities that I'm aware of agree and accept that this is not a medically necessary um, uh, procedure. When you agree and accept that, the tolerance for complications should hit the floor. Um, one death per year from a non uh, necessary medical procedure is too many. And we know that there are dozens and dozens of kids who die from circumcision-related complications every year. Of course, that's it is brought up sometimes in discussions of informed consent, but for the most part, that's kind of not discussed. This more severe, you know, amputation of the glands or any of these sorts of complications, which most people would be horrified by, are not brought up. Um, and so to me, the, the, the whole um, calculation of cost-benefit analysis um, starts at that point. And then you have to really, I mean, you know, t put aside the death, every circumcision has sexual consequences. Every single circumcision has uh, consequences to the infant male's future sexual experience, if we're talking about infants. And of course, um, you saw the testimony in my film of an adult male who was circumcised. Who, by the way, um, I didn't, um, it, a lot of the way this film was made, um, and this is something that people don't often understand, um, I went in with a really open mind about this that may be hard to believe. Um, but, you know, I had questions from, you know, growing up as a Jew and sort of appraising Jewish rituals critically. So I had questions about it. But I really did go in with an open mind uh, and open to be changed by the information I was learning. The guy that I interviewed who was circumcised as an adult, I didn't look for someone who had problems. 
I just happened upon him. I was looking actually for penis models. He may have noticed that there are a lot of penises in the film. And he mentioned to me that he had been, as we were, as I was shooting his penis, he mentioned to me that um, he'd been circumcised as an adult. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. I wonder what he'll say. So, you know, I set up the lights and we got the interview going. And sure enough, he would had a serious problem with it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, even on the standards that we have for informed consent of parents, there are serious problems with obtaining proper informed consent around circumcision, not to mention the fact that it's impossible to obtain the informed consent of the person upon whom this is being done if we're talking about infant circumcision. One thing I'd like to add is, obviously, if a circumcision today means something different than 10, 15 years down the road because as we acquire new technologies and you know vaccinations for things like HPV, HSV, and H HIV, obviously that completely changes the medical benefit for this type of procedure. Um, well, and, and well, I, you I, know, yeah. I don't like to get into it like there is no medical benefit because they can, they actually, the medical profession has found a way to justify this. So, and then you get into that argument and it just, it's just impossible. What I, how I like to look at it is um, any possible medical benefits must be weighed against risks and drawbacks. The risk data on this is a nightmare. I mean, there's just, it's, it's, the, the complications are not well documented. The deaths are often attributed to other causes such as hemorrhage, sepsis, and so on. Um, the, just the risk. The drawback, the, the function of the foreskin, I think the doctors don't actually know about it. I think that's part of the problem, that they, did, they, they didn't get the memo. So passing it along, you know, passing along a, a really, a, a, you know, a, a real information from which the parents, let alone the infant, but just the parents could, could do informed consent is really, it's, it's not really happening. I think, yeah, it's not happening. Every physician, when they graduate in medical school, takes the Hippocratic Oath. And one of the tenets of the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm. And um, I think that in, this, in the heyday of circumcision, this wasn't even, this was so normative that nobody even thought of it being a surgical procedure. And I guarantee you that informed consent was not an issue, especially, and even, even nowadays, especially in the heartland of this country where the numbers are still very high. It, it, we, we've said that the numbers are dropping and are some, somewhat hovering about 50% nationally. But in, in, uh, in Michigan, in Illinois, in, uh, in Wisconsin, they're still up 80 to 90%. And perhaps the mother or the father get a form, but the nurse will peremptorily give it to them and say, well, here's the circumcision uh, informed consent, just sign over here. And nobody gives them any informed consent about the complication rate, the problems, all of the things that we all who are enlightened here on the West Coast know about. Uh, I will say, though, that I do know that in some of the hospitals in San Francisco and in the East Bay, that they are taking this a lot more seriously, especially since there have been a number of suits that have been won by uh, plaintiffs, by young men, by parents, by botched circumcisions. Mm -hmm. And I think the issue of informed consent is a real issue now. And I think in time, as with education, and that's one of the things that Doctors Opposing Circumcision is trying to do, we will make the issue of informed consent 
really significant one because up till now it has really not been an issue for circumcisions. Can you tell us um, more about how and when this will become um, common knowledge rather than activism in the U.S.? Well, I'm working on it. Um, I, I, I mean, what I can tell you is that um, I know that my film is being used in some medical school curricula now, um, which makes me feel great. Um, having been a former medical student and not having learned a damn thing about this stuff. Um, so that makes me feel good. Um, I think it's starting to creep into academia. Uh, I, we had a screening in Chicago at a biology of gender class at the University of Chicago. Um, and so it's creeping in that way. Um, I can't tell you about the medical profession. I think that there are barriers to entry there. Not only because, and you know, apologies, Dr. Reese, but doctors sort of have a god complex, and, no <laughs> <necessarily>. <laughs> and um, they sort of have a tendency to not sort of accept information that comes from other sources, or they tend to be a little closed information that doesn't come from, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine or something. Um, uh, but there are barriers to entry. There are. Um, and I don't like to talk about this because I don't think this is a primary issue, but there are financial structures in place that incentivize the practice, not from, interestingly, not from the um, insurance companies whose incentive is always to not cover, but from um, hospitals who get to charge from it, doctors who get to charge from it. It's a very quick procedure. They can do lots of them and make lots of money. Uh, some hospitals uh, even charge a sort of... Um, just in, uh, like a standard circumcision fee, whether the kid's being circumcised or not, and whether the kid is a boy or a girl. So, you know, th there are there are barriers to getting this information out there. There are incentive structures in place that would um, sort of prevent it. But, you know, we live in a reasonably free society. Um, we have this wonderful thing called the Internet. And what I'm finding is that um, many parents are doing a complete end run around the medical establishment and doing their own research. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a new model. You know, my father's a physician and he's a, a big fan of this. You know, he tells his patients, inform yourselves, learn more about your disease than I know. And that sort of shift of um, patients taking control of their own uh, health issues uh, is real and it's being facilitated by the internet. Uh, I don't have very much more to say to it than, than other than to say that I guarantee you that although circumcision was an unconscious act, not only in Judaism, but in uh, the population of the United States as a whole up until relatively re recently, the last one or two decades, I guarantee you now that every mother and father that are giving birth to a boy, whether they're Jewish or they're not Jewish or they're Muslim, at least are talking about it. They're talking about the issue of circumcision, and a small number of them decide not to circumcise. So that is, it is an issue that is, it's just out in the press, in the media, in the internet. You read about it everywhere. And uh, so when you say, when, is the, when are we going to get this information other than from intactivists, it's out there. And, I, and if, if, you, if you are among a subset of young uh, childbearing couples, I'm sure it's talked about. Uh, you can probably attest to that uh, from your own experience if you're in that group.
Uh, first, thank you for the film. Um, I wonder if the panel could talk about the issue uh, as one of personal choice, uh, individual uh, freedom, public information, as opposed to government prohibition. <laughs> well, this, I mean, you're, 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 you're talking about the issue here in, in San Francisco, the, uh, yeah. Um, and elsewhere. Perhaps this panel is not the... Uh, well, I'll, I'll talk, I'll talk, talk about it. Yeah, Hell, ahead. I'll talk about it. Um, I th I've thought about this. Uh, I was asked at the beginning of the summer to write an op-ed uh, for the Jewish Daily Forward on this subject. And they asked me specifically to write about the situation in San Francisco. And I very cleverly chose to abstract it away from the situation in San Francisco, not weigh in on that, and just think about it abstractly. But I want to start in the abstract, and then I'll get down to the practical in a second. I thought long and hard about a good reason to oppose legislative efforts to make this practice illegal. And I failed. To, to come up with an actual in-principle reason to oppose it, knowing what I know about circumcision, that 1.3 million babies in this country were circumcised last year with the complete collusion of the medical establishment um, and without any anyone batting an eyelid. Um, that, to me, is a situation that needs to be addressed. And if someone wants to suggest that, the, that these babies be protected by the law, I can't think of a good reason to say that that's something that ought not be done. Now, having said that, that question is separate from um, whether or not it was wise to go ahead and try to make it illegal at this point in time. Those are separate questions. Um, there are some of the people who were involved in that effort sitting in this room, and I don't want to speak for them, but I am extremely appreciative of the fact that one of the things that their efforts uh, did achieve I said this at the top of the screening, and I really, really feel that this was a huge accomplishment, was that it got um, everyone talking about this for a solid two months. Um, it raised the profile of this issue to an international plenum, and it shifted the discourse away from talking about this as a parental choice to talking about this as the choice of the individual. These are huge accomplishments. Yes, there was a backlash. Yes, um, there were uh, significant politically organized uh, organizations who went after it and, and, you know, really did a number on, on, on it. You know, AB 768, this bill that basically has made it illegal to put it on the ballot anywhere else in, in California. Um, and yes, I understand uh, people who felt that this was a direct attack on their religious faith. Um, but they're wrong. It's not an attack on religious faith. What motivated the people to do this, who, who were involved in this effort, was not uh, any kind of anti-religious sentiment or anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim sentiment or Islamophobia. That wasn't what this was about. This has always been framed um, from the people uh, in this room and from the people involved in, in these efforts as a human rights issue. And the truth of the matter is that Jewish babies and, and Muslim babies are human beings, too, uh, deserving of the same kinds of protections. Um, now, again, whether it was wise to do it in the way that it was done, we can have an argument about that. 
Um, I think there are legitimate points of view on both, side of, both sides of that issue. But whether it should be legal, I don't know of any other form of assault on an infant that's legal in this country. Not only legal, but legal to be done by someone who's not even a trained medical professional. So I, I have a hard time opposing people who want to make it illegal. I just want to say one thing, that, the, that um, to do it legislatively is kind of like a quick fix. And I can understand why this motivation comes. We want to get it done now. Uh, social changes like this, and this is a social issue, uh, happen more slowly. And um, although I will agree that bringing it up to the media means that it's discussed, and that's one of the reasons why young couples talk about it all the time. But I think one of the, the thing that I feel most strongly about is that the way we're going to make changes is through education, education, education. I think when you try to force people into doing things, uh, you, you run into resistance. And that's, uh, that's one of the problems that I think that we ran into here from many different angles. So, hi, so I really loved the film. It was great and fabulous. I would like you to speak a little bit on why your mother was never in the film and what she really has to say about it. I'm sure that was strategic as well. Well, <laughs> I don't know that I'd call it strategic as much as I would, I'll just tell you the story. Uh, early on in the filmmaking process, I asked her to be a part of it because I thought her perspective would be really interesting. You'll notice that in the two brisses, I slowed down the footage of the mothers crying afterwards because I think that's a perspective that's often uh, left out of this. Um, my mother said that she refused to be in the film. Um, she, you know, she knows that people are asking about her now, and I told her that. I sort of visited with my parents in Chicago while I was there for a short time, and I said to her, you know, Ema, people are asking about you, and what I'm telling them is that you're ashamed of my work. And, you know, and so what she said was, you know about my work this is it this is what I got it was I I don't approve um, my mother is a religious fundamentalist and um, the notion of questioning something this fundamental to the Jewish tradition isn't just an anathema to her it's painful to her to contemplate that some that her firstborn child is 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 out there doing this um, and so that's that's why she's not in the film thank you I just wanted to thank all of you, activists and the filmmaker. You're all activists to me. I was just awestruck by this film because I remember in 1972 when I was in nursing school, I was asked to help to strap down these children. And I saw what they were doing and I said, I cannot do this as a potential nurse. It's obviously amoral. They allowed me to opt out. That led finally to a career in human rights where I represented thousands of people with disabilities. And then I ended up having the most painful neurological disability on the planet. And I have met men who have nerve damage from this in hospitals who were on the pain unit with me. Also, the issue of informed consent can be done. If parents cannot be objective, the child has a right to a surrogate decision maker under the California Constitution of this state. And people need to step up to the plate 
and do it. And it is a part of the change in our society, our culture, the whole thing. And I just so appreciate what you've done. I think it's amazing. I will never forget that moment. And I have never understood this issue of informed consent. You have to give material risks that a reasonable person would want to know. If the child cannot be represented by the parents because they cannot stand in the footsteps of the child and make a decision, then they cannot make it, period, end of story. And a lot of this is done for money, just as many things are done in this country and around the world for money, for that doesn't make it right. Never, ever, ever. So thank you. I hope everyone sees this film every potential mother, every aunt, every grandma, every woman I've talked to over years have told me that they regret the day that they didn't do anything. A woman told me, a Chinese woman said, I didn't know what to do as they approached Kenji. My intuition told me as a mom it was wrong. But they said I needed to do it for medical reasons, but I never understood what they were in the United States of America. Hi. Um, first of all, thank you very much for the film. Um, I loved it. I, I really don't have a question, sort of like the last person. I have a c comment, if I may. Um, I appreciate someone has addressed the issue from a feminist perspective. I'd also like to point out that I learned, I, I'm an attorney from Los Angeles, came up to watch the film with my girlfriend. Um, and I've done some lawsuits on botched circumcisions with Steven Sabota of, of Attorneys for the Rights of the Child. And I learned about this issue not through the intactivist movement, but through the men's rights movement. And it's interesting that, um, you know, I, it's not always talked about, uh, but that's how I learned because I'm on the board of the National Coalition for Men with Stephen Sabota. And uh, they address, you know, we address issues like fathers, custody rights, uh, battered men, and uh, paternity fraud, things like that. And that's how a lot of people that I know are learning these things is through, through that movement, even though that movement itself gets, uh, doesn't get much media attention and is, is often misunderstood and stereotyped as being sort of reactive, anti-feminist, and that kind of thing. Uh, it has a lot of diversity within it. But I just thought I'd, I'd point that out, because it, it is an in interesting point that there is a movement um, growing that, that really does embrace very much, for a large part, this, this issue. And something that made me think of that was as I sit here with my girlfriend, I see that sh we react to, we, we react to this film in very different ways. What moves her is seeing the, the baby be crying in pain, whereas what moves me is this double standard. As, as a sort of a men's rights activist, I get mm. very angry by the double standard uh, in the way we turn a blind eye to it because they're male. Um, and so I just wanted to point that out as, as something to throw into the mix. It's in, an interesting issue. Uh, you know, that's all. Any more comments? Um, now, I've been following uh, this, what happened in San Francisco uh, this summer and this fall uh, with the uh, in initiative. And I was really 
really angry and really astounded of all this misinformation that was thrown at us with the press. Uh, would you like to make any comment on, uh, on that, please? What, what specifically are you talking about in terms of misinformation from the press? <coughs> well, what I specifically was thinking about and, and what I noticed was the HIV AIDS uh, thing, you know, that uh, men with foreskin, uh, I mean, it, it, was, it just really disturbed me quite a lot, all this misinformation. Well, <laughs> I can speak to something really interesting. I'll tell you a story. Uh, I mentioned that I wrote an op-ed for the Jewish Daily Forward. Um, and, uh, you know, I sent in my draft, which I'd worked on uh, for quite some time. And I got back some revision suggestions. And uh, one of them, <laughs> they added a sentence where I was talking about how there are no proven medical benefits to circumcision. They added a sentence about except HIV, which has been demonstrated in Africa to be protective against HIV. And I, I wrote the op-ed editor back and I was like, what, what, what's going on here? I didn't write that. You can't put that in there. And he's like, oh, so you, you, you don't accept that there are any medical benefits to circumcision? And I said, I intentionally didn't touch on the HIV situation because it's complex, requires a much broader kind of dealing. I don't have space to deal with it in like this, I don't remember what it was, like a 1,200-word op-ed. Um, and I don't want to get into that. Um, but I had to fight to not have that sentence in my op-ed in the Jewish Daily Forward. So it gives it, you know, this is sort of the, the thing that's going on. Um, yeah, of course, the HIV thing is sort of taken by a lot of people as uh, gospel truth. Uh, you know, in a, in a day or two, I'm going to post an interview that I just did with a local intactivist by the name of David Wilton, uh, who's here. Uh, we had a really good conversation about this earlier today. We spent an hour and a half talking about uh, circumcision and HIV. He's got a phenomenal blog on the subject called circumcisionhiv.com. Um, really, you know, great, great resource. Um, but, you know, the, the other misinformation other than that uh, that I reacted to... But but the, the thing that, that, that bothered me the most, because I'm in this weird and unique position, as are all of us on this table, of being a Jew who knows a lot of intactivists. And after the last two months, that I find that that, that that statement's even more true. I've been going around the North American continent meeting some like quite a few intactivists. And I just I know intactivists and I know that they're not motivated by anti Semitism. Um, and so when I saw this in the media um, and I saw this being used for political purposes against the situation here, it really bothered me. Uh, and, I mean, the way I dealt with it was um, I engaged this uh, celebrity rabbi, um, Shmuley Botech, <laughs> in a public debate uh, in New York. Uh, he had been writing in the Huffington Post that there are only two possibilities uh, for why someone would be against circumcision. Number one, that they're anti-Semites anti slash have a radical secularist agenda, and number two, that they have some kind of weird sexual problems. Um, that's what he said. And so, you know, I, I debated him publicly. Um, the results are online for all to judge. Um, I won't say much more about that, but that really bothered me because, and he, and to be honest with you, he really believed that. Like, he wasn't being disingenuous. That individual, Rabbi Shmuley Botech, was not being disingenuous about it. He honestly believed that the only possible motivation for this could be some kind of radical secularist agenda. 
anti-religious agenda. Well, this has been an extremely uh, interesting and hopefully enlightening evening for all of us. Uh, we are running short on time, so we are going to have to wrap it up. But I want to thank you all again so very much for joining us here for the San Francisco screening of Cut. I want to thank all of our guest panelists. It was truly an honor and a privilege to have you join us here tonight, and I'm so grateful that each of you were able to participate with us. Thanks so much. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. Thank you.